You're listening to Getting Lit with Linda Mora, the podcast where we welcome you to get lit. Canadian lit, that is. Join Linda as she talks about authors in Canada and sometimes with them, using her expertise to shed some light on recent and not-so-recent writers. And now, get ready for Getting Lit with Linda. Hi, this is Linda Mora, the writer and host of Getting Lit with Linda. I have as a guest with me today the most fabulous novelist and short story writer, Lisa Moore. Moore is an exceptional storyteller. Each of her nine books of fiction register her gift for evoking images and details that are both startling as they are familiar. Her panache for delineating characters that are so complex, at times warm and tender, at other times bristly and gruff, but always compelling. That gift for narrative shows itself very well, I may add, in her most recent book, This Is How We Love, which is the focus of discussion in today's episode. The novel opens with a harrowing moment. Jules and Joe, they're a couple and two of the main characters in the novel, receive a phone call while they're on vacation in Mexico. You know this call, the one you never want to receive. They learn at that moment that their son Xavier has been brutally beaten and stabbed and landed in critical condition in the hospital. And just to ramp up the tensions that ensue, they need to find their way back to Xavier through what is being referred to as the snowstorm of the century in Newfoundland, where they ordinarily live. It's a gripping narrative, one that I found I just couldn't put down, and I suspect you'll feel the same. So, to whet your appetite for the book further, here's my interview with Lisa Moore. Hi, Lisa, and welcome to Getting Lit with Linda. Thanks, Linda. Thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. So we're going to start with a more general question. You're based in Newfoundland in St. John's right now? At the moment, I'm actually around the bay, but I do live in St. John's, yes. Okay. So I guess as a kind of general sense of things, do you see yourself as an East Coast writer? Is that a thing? What, what does it mean? I would say particularly I'm a Newfoundland writer, probably. I travel a lot and I would, I would like a, a readership that's bigger than Newfoundland. <laughs> Darn it. You <laughs> but, do. Um, you do. I'm part of that. <laughs> okay. okay, good. But I think I write about Newfoundland. I travel and other places make their way into my stories, but I write about Newfoundland. And that's, uh, you know, not that I compare myself to Faulkner, but he did say that, you know, he mined a lot out of a little postage stamp. And I could write for the rest of my life uh, just about one street, I'm quite sure. I'm I'm pretty sure that you could do that too. The details, the exquisite details in this novel are something. We're going to come back to that. So I thought of this novel as a kind of function of place. And again, we'll return to that when we get into the particulars of the novel. I just did an episode on Mother's Day about mothers and loving. And the title of it is, it really is all about our mothers. It's reflections on loving. The title of this book almost sounds like a prescription or a recipe how how to love in 10 not so easy steps <laughs> <laughs> yeah why this title why did you choose that title well this book really came out of you know the escalation of polarization that we're seeing globally but everywhere 
but we're but it's it's even you know in very local places and it the language has become less polite less generous we're less loving i think yeah. we're less open to people who don't hold the same opinions as we do and you see it in like microaggressions macroaggressions wars everything and i wanted to i really wanted to ask the question what would fix this and how do we love how do we love wider circles of people like how do we love more people how do we spread it farther how do we fix this situation we're in so it was a it was an interrogation of myself really it was a question i was asking myself how do we do that and then i guess the book is my answer uh, you know as messy and mm-hmm. um and on full or on incomplete as an answer could be this is it it's wonderful it's it's such a moving account i thought we could have said who do you love and it's everyone even the there are characters who are tricky more challenging you would feel perhaps or i might feel less inclined to love certain kinds of people bullies and so on but the book maneuvers around those characters in these beautiful ways evoking sympathy even for those particular characters Yes, I think, you know, that is the job of the novelist, really, or the short story writer, to try and see all sides of an issue, all sides of a person, to understand where behavior like bullying comes from. It's That's our work, to never be satisfied with the easy answer or, or to stop asking. And so, like, I really thought about how people become bullies. What is the generational trauma that they might have been through? What does it mean to be a child who is not secure in love? And what does that do to you? Yeah, I think that's quite right. You had said that this is what a novelist does. And I immediately thought this is what a good novelist does. So this is one of the reasons why I I have so much affection for this book. And I feel like it's so praiseworthy. You did choose a novel rather than a short story collection, and you could have, in a way, opted for a short story collection. We're going to talk about the framework in a minute. Is there a reason, though, that you choose one genre over another? You know, Linda, I have been thinking about that a lot. Lately, I have been, I've put together over the last five years or so, a number of anthologies of short stories by my students. And right now I'm the editor of The Next Best Canadian stories. And so I've been reading whack loads of stories and (laughs) wondering, like wondering what the difference is. I had a great conversation with Alexander McLeod about the difference. Oh, wonderful. Yes. I mean, he's such an amazing writer. He is. And I think for me, the only difference that Alex would disagree is, (laughs) is the length, you know, that you can make, you can make the world of a novel fit into a story. That's the notion of of what a story can do. You have been doing these wonderful podcasts with poets. And like, yeah. I'm like, oh my gosh, how do they do that? I don't know. I don't know how they do that. But I think the answer that I'm coming to understand about myself is that it's what I'm reading at the time. Like I am hungering to write stories now after reading all these stories i'm i'm ready for it 
but you know the the novel while i believe i give the same attention to each sentence that's in a novel that i do in my short stories 100% the the novel does provide certain freedoms you can go farther you can you can have more tangents you can give more space to the minor characters mm, which is what happens here I like the idea, you know, that old theater adage, there are no small actors, there are only, there are no small parts, there are only small actors. And (laughs) I feel like, sometimes I feel like the novel is incredibly democratic, that we can include everybody in the novel. And sometimes I think, what a great novel it would be if I could give a thousand pages to everybody I glance at on the street. I just... It's important to me to ask the question, who gets to have a voice? Who do we get to hear from? You know the short story by uh, George Louis Borges about a map that is so big, it it actually covers the entire territory. It's so detailed, it unfolds over the whole territory. I would like to map Newfoundland with page by page stories, just all over the whole, the whole province. That's an act of love, isn't it? Uh, well, it's curiosity. Maybe it's love. Yes, I hope so. But it, it's also just the, uh, yeah, an intensity of wanting to know what makes us human. It's also that everyone gets a voice. So you said who gets a voice, that kind of expansive and also granular perspective. Everyone would get a voice in that. Yes, I'm not sure it would work as a novel. <laughs> Probably not. I'm not sure I'm ready to give my the rest of my life to that project, but I would read it if someone else did it. <laughs> well, the structure of this novel is so interesting. I was so fascinated. It's quite sophisticated. So it begins in the present moment, but then we have this, what I would say is intricate webbing between characters and incidents So again, it begins in that crucial moment, then loops back in time, and it shifts in perspective from first person to third person. How do you keep it straight when you're writing a book like that? Uh, The answer to that is Melanie Little. (laughs) She's my editor. (laughs) Thanks, Melanie. (laughs) Melanie is a genius. I have to just trust my subconscious a little bit. Like I have to believe that there's a reason that I am writing this scene now. And I don't I don't write in chronological order, but I also don't write in the order that the material appears in the novel. So there's a lot of rejigging that goes on. And of course, every time you move a scene, you're changing both scenes. The relation between scenes changes the scenes and rewriting has to happen. But I guess maybe this is because what makes a short story cohesive is often the notion of or the the technique of patterning, like image patterning, even even on the level of the sound, like a poet does. Mm-hmm. And it's harder to maintain that kind of narrative tension over the scope of a novel just by linking it through image patterning. But I think that is a, it's something that has to run through the novel anyway mm-hmm. in order to make it cohere. So it does cohere. As I say, it, I was very fascinated by the, by the structure. And yet, I wondered how you figured out how to map it so that it still carried the sense of the story forward, even as it moved backward. Do you know what I mean? 
Mm-hmm. It's a mystery. <laughs> <laughs> it totally you'd, works. It totally works. You'd really have to ask Melanie. <laughs> so then, I think. okay, so tell me about the process then. So are you writing chunks and sending it to Melanie and Melanie rearranges it? No, okay. I mean, I... That then I would lose her as an editor. <laughs> she would be gone. We must keep you, Melanie. We love you. <laughs> yeah. So, no, she likes to see a full manuscript. But there are things like I didn't, I wasn't sure that I wanted to start with the beginning scene. It is so... Oh, it's such a compelling opening scene. I was hooked. Well, Melanie is, you know, very, she will listen to what I think and want but she was she put her foot down on that she said this is how the novel begins and I think she's probably right I think she's right though I read passages of your book out loud because they're so there's it's so beautiful to listen to it but when I first read it I couldn't put the book down okay keep going oh Oh, thank (laughs) you such a great hook do you read passages out loud when you're writing I do. I, yes, I have to hear it. I I have to hear the rhythm of it and the cadence. And But even so, when I prepare a reading for the public, I'm crossing things out of the book because, no. yes, and I think most writers do that because what you read aloud to an audience requires very different things than what you can get away with in a book. Because reading a book, the reader chooses their own speed with which they read but when you're in public reading you are choosing how quickly they have to listen to the story and experience it but so how the how then does that work with audible for example if your story is being read i think you with audible you have actors and they know what they're doing so they can get away with all kinds of stuff so to loop back then to the idea of structure and so i was referring to how we it moves in this kind of circular fashion. Is there a risk in telling the story in that way? Did you, were you concerned about the fact that there might have been a risk? Do you mean in in terms of losing readers? In terms of keeping the facts straight. So I, as a reader, might think, wait, when did that happen? And so there's a possibility. It doesn't happen. I'm just going to clarify that. But I thought that was one possible risk. I think it depends a lot on... I mean, I think it does happen for some readers. I'm glad it didn't happen for you. No. You just happen to be an excellent reader. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think think it, you know, the way we receive a book depends on where we are, what's happening to us in our lives. And sometimes I I can really lose myself in a book. And other times... I, I will get lost, even in, in the very best books. So, yes, there is a risk. There always is a risk. But it's a question of trusting the reader, I guess, to follow you, even if it's a bit of work. Uh, Stan Draglin, the late Stan Draglin, who yes. is such a, an amazing critic, wrote a book called The Difficult. And he's talking about the value of difficult writing, writing that is really takes a lot of work, even like fiction to absorb. And I think for me, the idea, it's kind of an anti-capitalist stance Mm -hmm. to, to not make things very simple and palatable and easy to move through because we're moving so fast in, in our jobs, in our lives where, you know, push toward production and the, and 
the effort to slow down or to slow the reader down so that they're experiencing the moment so that they give over to the suspension of disbelief wholly, I think that is the that is the the gift of of literature. Like it makes us value not rush through our lives. I think that's your gift. I'm quite astonished by what you're saying, but I think you're quite right about that. I'd never thought of literature slowing us down as a kind of anti-capitalist gesture. But I think that's quite accurate. That's very good. It's really easy, you know, and we're all, well, I don't know if we're all guilty of it. I know I am. Me too. Of rushing through life and not experiencing it while we're in it and and not experiencing it wholly. And that is something that I think literature teaches us to do. So, or could, it could bring us to that. It strikes me that it, refers back to the title, This Is How We Love, which is to slow down, appreciate the complexity of the human being who is the recipient of your love and so on. It ties back to what is, I think is going on in part in this novel. So let's now talk a little bit more about this novel. So when the novel opens, Xavier's in the hospital and from his point of view, we don't understand why at first, but he seems to think that this is related to Trinity, that it's Trinity's fault. And oh my heavens, what a name, Trinity. Trinity, I loved it. Um, she's kind of a half-sister, not biologically speaking. That relationship speaks to the kind of organic rather than biological ties that we form with other people. He would like to shuck her off at times. I was thinking about that, but this is all the more poignant when we understand Trinity's history. So I thought I would ask you specifically to speak to the listeners about that moment with Trinity at the beach. What happens there? Okay. Well, there's a there's a scene and this actually this happened last summer here where I am now around the bay. It happens frequently that children are on flotation devices blown up swans or whatever they are and they are in the ocean and they get swept out to sea no come on yes two people were given a like in real life an award for rescuing this child who had gone in a heartbeat out over the water and the water here is extremely cold and i know that that did happen to a child who was picked up by the coast guard that i was i fictionalized but was was thinking about when I wrote that piece, it is the, uh, so Trinity is at, she's a very young, I think she's nine Mm -hmm. and she's at the beach, but her mother is with a boyfriend and they're drunk and they're not paying attention. And, and the boyfriend is abusive and is kind of controlling the mother and Trinity floats out and, but falls asleep on an air mattress and is halfway to Belle Island, which is quite a distance and gets picked up by the Coast Guard. So I wanted to, like, I wanted to, I know that happens to children and I wanted to think about the void, the void that the ocean is and how alone you really would be under those circumstances and to experience that kind of unmooring and loss of anyone caring for you at that age and how that would 
affect you. And it does affect Trinity. So this is part of the complexity of the relationships that, that are unfurling throughout the novel. Her relationship with Xavier is also quite complicated. Well, there's this thing that happens in that scene when she's on the air mattress. The Coast Guard who is picking her up is telling her, I got you, I got you over and over. And he doesn't really have her at that point. But he it's as though saying it over and over makes her believe it or he makes him believe it. Anyway, they they manage to get to the boat with no harm done, uh, no physical harm done. But later when Xavier is attacked and and stabbed and left in a snowbank, and this is almost a decade later, she finds him and in trying to keep him conscious and everything else, she repeats those words. Of course, she has no idea that she's repeating the Coast Guard's words, but she's saying, I got you, I got you. And it is the connection to her that's gotten him in this difficulty. It's certainly not her fault, of course, but it is, there is a reason that he, he is, um, he's mad <laughs> that she shows up. <laughs> he blames her in a way. We, we won't tell the listeners why he does. You'll have to read the novel to find out. I thought that that moment of saying, I got you, when it's not certain that I've got you, is a statement of faith. I got you. Yes, that's a really good way to put it. Yes. Yes, faith. That's really, really lovely. And in both instances, right? If Trinity doesn't know either that she has got him, but she wants him to know it's a statement of faith. I believe you're going to be okay, and I will will it with every fiber of my being. Yes, that's right. It's a fealty. Is that the word? Hmm. It is a standing together despite what might happen. It's It's an agreement to be there as well. That's beautiful. There are moments like this throughout the course of the novel. So Jules traveling through a snowstorm just to be at the bedside of her son, which had me weeping, fully weeping. (laughs) (laughs) Because it's such a, a testament to this is how we love. It's a testament to what she will do the extent she will go for her son, who is in critical condition in the hospital. Were you thinking about different ways of how to love in moments like that? In fact, I was visiting someone, not my son, in the hospital after Snowmageddon, which was (laughs) just the worst storm in a century. It completely buried the city. And we weren't really allowed out of our houses, but it happened that the roads that go to the hospital were the first cleared. And so I was walking to the hospital and it is true as happens in the novel that there was a man with a snowblower. And so in the midst of the absolutely surreal, unbelievable landscape, I was walking through like, like mountains of snow over my head. (laughs) He happened to have the chute that the snow flies out of pointed toward where I was and it just came down on my head and it was like <laughs> no, no. it was like what is actually happening here <laughs> so there's lots of autobiography in this in this book oh there is i wondered i didn't want to ask i sometimes think that's a common question and also 
a little impertinent. <laughs> so. I've learned a lot from your podcast, Linda. I really have. I really have. And I appreciate your sensitivity around that issue of, you know, how much of a work is fiction and how much is autobiography and what does the reader need to know. But because you're so articulate about that. That's so kind of you. Thank you. Well, it's true. And <laughs> my son was never harmed in this way. Thank heavens. Oh, thank God. Yeah. But a lot of, there are a lot of stabbings in St. John's, a lot of violence in St. John's that I, over the last 10 years, I would say, or maybe even 15, it has grown exponentially. And I was responding to that. But you know, there the, there are other characters in the novel that are really close to me and, and really as true to real life as, as I could get because I wanted to I wanted to honor them. I wanted them to be in the book in a in a very real way, even though the book is fiction. That's lovely. I, you've opened Pandora's box, though, now. <laughs> <laughs> I want to know who. <laughs> well, my mother and sister are very real. And, you know, I asked my sister. My sister is a lawyer. She's a very powerful person. Mm -hmm. I asked her, you know, what name she wanted. I, I think I had actually named her something, and she didn't like that. And she said Nell. And hmm. we were at a party recently together, and someone said, I love how she named your character by your name backwards, Nell Lynn. <laughs> and Lynn and I just cracked up laughing because we hadn't noticed. It wasn't intentional. No. <laughs> no, these are the peculiar things that happen when you try to put real people in fiction. You get caught. <laughs> so speaking of character, there are a number of really great characters who take up quite a lot of space so I'm thinking of minor major characters the protagonist who's the protagonist oh I mean I am I guess I I do you mean who's the protagonist as in do you mean Jules or do yes. you mean is Jules based on you is that what you mean by saying I am I think in some ways it is actually quite impossible to capture yourself in fiction I I don't know how people who isn't it who write autobiographies really imagine that they're getting themselves on the page because, you know, we don't really see ourselves sometimes as clearly as we see other people. But I think I wanted to try a first person narrator who was in some ways like me mm. and had, yeah, and had my thoughts. But it is, it is a fiction. So Jules, who is closely related to you, a cousin of, of sorts is the protagonist of this book do you, would you say oh um no that's why I hesitated and said mm -hmm. what do you mean by protagonist because I do like that kind of democracy that I was talking about I believe that every character in the book has an equal value even if they have shorter a shorter number of pages less pages a devoted to them they are for me as important as someone who has more pages mm -hmm. I wanted them all to weigh fairly equally even if they were small what you know traditionally you might call a smaller character that was a trick question that wasn't quite fair I didn't think that there was a protagonist either but I wanted to know if you thought that it does come across 
I love that you use the word democratic. It is a kind of democratic representation of different voices that are all, well, this is how we love, that they're all entangled with each other in various kinds of ways, in not always necessarily positive ways either, but they're, they're attached to each other. They're connected. Yeah, and I think it's about sort of the quality of attention they're given rather than the quantity. It's, it's about the intensity of the attention. Yeah, I think that's great. The voices are all so unique. So what listeners may or may not know, given what we've already said, is that the voices are represented from different points of view. So from Jules's point of view, from Xavier's point of view, when it shifts to Xavier, it's third person. I'm going to read just a little tidbit. This is when Trinity is in the hospital for a reason I won't tell you about. You have to read the book to find out. So he says, this is from his point of view, his impression, which he was having a hard time shaking, was that Trinity was turning inside out, and he never should have been put in this position. He was full of wonder and a creeping indignation. He felt he was too young to be in the room. It aged him decades, maybe centuries. I love that moment because, <laughs> right? Because I thought only someone that young would think it's aged me decades, maybe centuries. I thought I can tell what his age is by that, that fleck. But also I think there's something humorous in it because he is so privileged that he <laughs> you know, had so unaware of his privilege that he thinks he's put upon that he has to watch this person suffer. <laughs> I mean, I'm poking fun at him there. Yes. But, you know, like we've, we've all been there, right? Where it's like, why do I have to watch this suffering? <laughs> I mean, maybe we haven't all been there, but I think so. I, I can sympathize. I can sympathize with him while laughing. Yes. It's wonderful. It's a moment that I highlighted and because I thought it was such a great capturing of his age and his voice. It renders it so so beautifully and there are you could turn the page and I could find another one it's like this throughout the it's sustained throughout the entire novel so I, I love it thank you Linda that that means so much to me you can't even know it it really means a lot I truly deeply appreciate it and I appreciate your your asking me to be on the podcast but also <laughs> that you read the book and with such attention thank you I loved it it's not every day that I pick up a novel and feel that way. It's probably been about two years since I felt like that about a novel. So I want to thank you for that. I want to thank you for being on the podcast today. Is there anything you want to ask me or is there anything you wish I had asked you? Uh, no, I truly enjoyed this conversation so much and I'm deeply appreciative. So, so thank you. And again, that was my interview today with Lisa Moore. And with a special thanks to James Healy for all of his work in setting up the studio. Please don't forget to subscribe and rate us on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. Thanks again for listening, my dear listeners. That was Getting Lit with Linda, hosted by Linda Mora. If you have a topic you would like to hear covered, write to us at gettinglitwithlinda at gmail.com. Until next time, we hope you continue to get lit.